So hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and welcome to my office. This is Beyond the Prescription, a show where I talk with people who are at the top of their fields about their health, their success, their struggles, and their relationship between all of it. I'm a primary care doctor in Washington, D.C., and a mother of three. In practicing medicine for over 20 years, I realized that patients are much more than the sum total of their cholesterol and their weight, and that health is about more than the absence of disease. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. So today we have this amazing guest, Mika Brzezinski. You probably know her as co-host of the popular MSNBC show, Morning Joe. And she's also an accomplished journalist, author, talk show host, political commentator, and advocate for women who spent her whole career lending her voice to the greatest issue of our time, whether by reporting live from the Twin Towers on 9-11 guiding women in the public through the pandemic or advocating for women, particularly in the media, Mika is really a force of nature. And even in the face of significant challenges throughout her life, she's been a formidable voice in our nation and and an example of perseverance, success, and standing up for what you believe in. I'm so excited, Mika, to have you on the show and really appreciate you joining me today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that intro. Not sure I deserve it, but Thank you. (laughs) Well, as we were talking about previously, you know, to me, health is about more than your cholesterol and your weight and the number on the scale. Health is about your everyday lived experiences, and it's about how you grapple with struggle. And so what's incredible about you, Mika, is how you have, you know, been so honest and authentic about your own struggles with your relationship with food, with Mm. sort of owning your own voice and speaking up for yourself. And you've really been a role model for women all over the world. And I'd love to just hear where are you now? Like what's going on? And then maybe we'll take a little journey back in time and talk about how you got there. So I think you hit the nail on the head with this podcast because uh, health is about a lot more than numbers that you, the doctor, reads on a piece of paper. And that's been proved in my life. Um, My health significantly improved um, when I became happier, when I became more mindful, when I became more settled in myself, when I (laughs) let it go and accepted myself. Acceptance. Mm Mm-hmm. A lot of that, which I didn't know I had a problem with. I didn't, you know, (laughs) you always do the things that you judge, including judge, which is the worst thing in the world to do. And I was very judgy with myself and it it was very destructive. And so sort of that's a very big question. Where are you at right now? I am 55 on, on the cusp of 55. And I have two daughters who I love more than life, but am working hard to connect with in ways that are more authentic and mindful than ever before. And it's still a process, but that in itself makes me so happy. And I am the host of a four-hour show, which is insane and unhealthy. It is insane. I mean, it was three hours, which was already kind of a lot, and now it's four. It's four. It's insane. It's unhealthy, but I get to do it with my partner in life. And we are happy. And we are make, we do make our presence makes each other happy. So it's, I think it's why it, it works um, for now. I mean, it's only been a few weeks, so um, it's tough. I'll tell you that. But again, it's all about the process and embracing the process of sort of enhancing your relationships and enhancing your own personal happiness. And I do believe that in many ways, I'm at my healthiest. 
It's great. I think, as you just said, we're all works in progress, right? Like even my 92 year old patients, I still think like we can still, we can do better. We can have more self-awareness. You could work on your balance and your coordination and your muscle mass. You could work on your relationship with alcohol and food. Mm -hmm. Like it's never too late. So take me back to when you were a pup, like in your 20s and 30s and you were having kids. And, and there's that moment where you were working and multitasking and fell mm. holding your daughter. And I think that was physical trauma, right? But also maybe a metaphor for like what women tend to do to themselves to try to yeah. be successful. Take me back to that version of Mika, not that you're a different person now, but yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's a different version. Um, I think I always was striving and driving and, you know, kind of, we grew up, how old are you, Lucy? I'm almost 50. I'll be 50 in October. Okay. So I'm a little older than you, but we're in that stage. We're in that, that pocket of women who were like, have it all, have it all. You got to have it all. You can do it. You can have it all. But I think the message that somehow filtered down to me was, you know, do it all, look great doing it, and you're happy, and you're this, and you're that, and you're all those things at the same time. And I actually wrote a book about this, not being possible. But um, in the process, you're just sort of a shell of yourself, driving forward, trying to be the perfect wife. A mom, a super mom, I think was the term of our age. And in the television business, the hours are terrible. Weren't you getting up at 3.30 in the morning? At the time of the fall, I was actually doing overnights. Yeah. I had a two-year-old child and I was pregnant and then I'd, then I'd given birth and I didn't get maternity leave. I didn't get paid on my maternity. I was freelance for the network, a freelance anchor. And you know, I was really worried about losing my job. The accident is incredibly painful to talk about it. And naturally, I go right <laughs> to the pain in like the first five yeah. minutes of our conversation. Well, no, that's all right. I'm still paying for it. Are I'm you? still paying for it. Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, the worst thing about these types of things is they're self-inflicted. You know, I was working long, that the long hours. I was trying to do it all. I was trying to shave off the hours of an exhausted babysitter. I was trying to get her. I was trying to do everything for everybody. And in that process of, of being that person who tries to do everything for everybody, you end up, you know, not serving the people that you should be caring for the most, number one, you and your children. And so that was just, you know, I just remember holding onto the hospital wall and sliding down the wall and then my face hitting the granite floor and seeing little specks of the granite and like just begging for this to be okay, crying so hard, but also at the same time, just so angry at myself. Yeah, that shame. And on top of what got you into that moment, the shame that you layered on top of yourself that you've written about. I think what is so important to me and to the people who are listening to you talk about this and have listened to you talk about this is that you have really put your finger on the pulse of what so many women struggle with around the country and around the world. This notion that you can have it all, this notion that you can parent, you can caregive, you can have a job that's meaningful and pays you well, or in some cases, not so well, sometimes 14 times less than the guys. And then you can look pretty in the meantime and not complain about it. And then if you mess up, it's all your fault. When, when actually, you know, health is about meeting your basic biological needs first 
and putting the proverbial oxygen mask on yourself first. But I think you, like so many women, learned that the hard way. And I, and I think that some some struggle is necessary, right? Like we have to struggle and recognize like what matters in the world and into ourselves over time. But I think that you're being honest about that is really modeling for other people vulnerability. One of the, my favorite things to do with my patients, if it's appropriate and there's a rapport, is, you know, people will say, well, you can't even understand what this is like. You're slender and you're a doctor. And, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Like, let me just demystify that for one moment. Like, I might look like I have it all together, but look, I'm a work in progress. I've done therapy throughout my life. Mm -hmm. I've had skeletal problems. I struggle with, you know, all the things that people struggle with um, in varying degrees, right? Like, we're all human. And so I think disarming people and, and helping people understand that we're all just doing the best we can is really a powerful thing. And I think part of your message with Know Your Value. Well, a huge message that has really dawned upon me in the past year as I put together this partnership with Forbes, 50 over 50, and we put together the first US list a year ago, mm. 50 women over the age of 50 who were achieving great success in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever. And we came up with the most incredible list. And we were like, oh my God, there's so many women like this that we immediately went global. We did 50 over 50 Asia, 50 over 50 Europe. We had an event in Abu Dhabi, the 3050 Summit, where the 50-somethings were mentoring the 30-somethings. And now we're just, we have um, submissions. The, the window is open for the next US 50 over 50 list, and we're doing it all over again. But the response was so remarkable. And the women I interviewed, by the way, I mean- if you look in our own U.S. government, if you look at Nancy Pelosi, I mean, okay, trailblazer. <laughs> you there, but there's so many of them. Yes, and and I I interviewed them, and I I want to tell the women who are like, well, you know, I just won't do what Mika did by avoiding the steps. That's not the answer. Okay, the answer is to understand you need to slow down and pace yourself. Okay, because it's not possible to do everything at once really, really perfectly, even if you have all the resources in the world. Okay, it's not possible. It's not human. It's not going to be you. You're not going to figure out who you are in this journey that is life and your career and your relationships with children if you choose to have them or with a partner or a husband. You can't do those things in a rush. And what I found by creating this list is I've talked to women who are like, whoa, whoa, slow down. We're living longer and your career can go as long as it wants. It can have twists and turns and ups and downs. You can be fired like me. You can fall flat on your face. Everything can blow up. You can start all over again and you can still get to where you want to go. You have so much more time than you know. And I think you and I, Lucy, were working within these windows that were not realistic, but also not real. Right. And there are women now like you, like me, who are here to say, we're not going anywhere. And people actually want us. They're like hiring us and stuff for four hour shows, you know, so slow down, pace yourself. Part of health is actually really being present, which I never knew how to do. I want to put that on a billboard or like a blimp over, you know, Washington, D.C., Northwest Washington, you know, high achieving sort of perfectionism town, um, you know, not ill intended, but people are really, you know, people are really wound up, particularly after the pandemic. People are really, really yeah. hard on themselves about their eating, their drinking, their weight gain. Um, you yeah. know, they're not sleeping. And I'm not to say not to say I'm not have challenges in all those departments. 
but but to say that play the long game, it's process over outcome, the process Mm -hmm. of being a human every day. We live in our bodies every single day. Health is about more than the sum total of your lab tests when you come in for your annual Mm -hmm. checkup. It's about how do you bring your whole self to your work every day, to your parenting. I'd be so interested to talk to you about specifically the relationship with food, which you've been so honest about in your book. It's something that people struggle with Every day. And as I say to patients who have a relationship with food that's wobbly and not rooted in hunger and satiety, because let's let's face it, like who in this world eats only when they're hungry and doesn't eat when they're not hungry? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. no, it's an emotional, they're emotional inputs, they're behavioral inputs. Yeah. The, the habits we have with relationship to food are some, are often rooted in childhood. It's where we learned, you know, how to structure how we eat. It's, it's, you know, for a lot of families, food is love, food is celebration. I mean, that's part of the Mm -hmm. fabric of our American life. And you've really struggled with that relationship. My patients now coming out of the two years of the pandemic, a lot of patients have, have gained a significant amount of weight and they want sort of a diet to go on or a quick fix. And, you know, I tell them all the time, like, you know, I could tell you that there's some magic pill out there. There isn't. But but one of the things I, I commonly talk about is is not just thinking about what you eat, but also the cadence of your eating and what are the emotional triggers and what is your relationship with food like? Because for so many people, it's like walking around with a tiger on a leash. You can't hang up food like you can alcohol if that's your issue, not that quitting alcohol is easy. So this is a long way of asking you, can you talk about what that process has been sort of examining your relationship with food, which for some people listening may seem, seem mundane, but actually it's so important to our everyday life. We have to eat and face food many times a day, many times in our life. Yeah, I think I just did a news segment on um, eating disorders on the rise, especially in out coming out of the pandemic. Right. Um, So it it is uh, something that I've struggled with. I wrote um, a couple of books. A couple of them were, you know, on the New York Times bestseller list. The one that I think sold pretty well, but didn't sell compared to the others. But I'm going to tell you, wherever I go, people come up to me and they squeeze my arm or they squeeze me. They squeeze my haunches. <laughs> they squeeze you. Yes. And they say, I read Obsessed and I loved it. And it was me. And that's a, a book that I wrote about my relationship with food. I wrote it alongside a friend. We wrote it together and we both had similar journeys, although she struggled with obesity and I struggled with maintaining my weight really because I was forcing myself not to have a healthy weight. And um, But we both actually had the same relationship with food. So it was kind of an interesting way and we both worked through it. And I did work through a lot in the writing of that book. I think my relationship with food today is finally where it needs to be. And there's all sorts of acceptance around that. That is an emotional part of it, just like not looking at food and feeling shamed by what you're eating or thinking about what it's, you know, when you choose something really delicious, you you don't actually gain weight the second it goes down your throat. Like people actually think that way. (laughs) And I know I did. I'd be like, oh my God, I've got to change my genes. Right. (laughs) As if it happens instantaneously and as if you're not deserving of pleasure and joy in the form of food. Exactly. We do this funny thing in this country in particular where we we label foods as good or bad. People talk about being on the wagon or off the wagon with eating. They're either, you know, intermittent fasting or they're off the rails when actually so much of what we need to be thinking about is that gray area, the more intuitive eating, which, right. which is the hardest thing for so many people. And, and you struggled with it for years and decades, it sounds like. Well, for young women, I would say it's the long game. Get this uh, figured out. 
Okay. And apparently no mother can say anything to her children about food because whatever you say is the wrong thing. And I know my parents who were amazing said all the wrong things, but you know what? It's on me ultimately to take care of this body and it's on you. And when I'm talking to young, younger women to take care of your body. And I actually would stop looking at the people who said things to you that might've triggered something. I'm just, you know what? It's your relationship to take care of your body. You know what you're putting into it. You know what you're not putting into it. Only you can figure out how to live a healthy life and to figure out your relationship with food and certain types of food, sugars, salts, fats, but especially sugar. And do you really know how many foods have sugar in them? (laughs) Things like that, that could really help you uh, live a healthier life. And one of the things that is kind of hopeful and less kind of me talking with my finger up or something is that, you know, it can take three weeks, a month. I mean, I'm stretching it to change your taste buds toward a healthier diet for yourself. So I'm not going to tell you what a healthier diet should be for you. I think there's so much information out there that it's pretty available to find information that would lead you to a healthier eating. And it takes about three weeks for your taste buds to catch up with those changes. So Well, for three weeks, it might be like, oh, I don't like broccoli, Rob, and I don't like this, or I don't eat tofu or whatever this diet you decide to change to. But if you're changing from a worse to a better relationship with food, it takes, give yourself a month. Yeah. And, and also a little gr- and a little grace and, and space, as you just said, to, to kind oh, of make changes. Give yourself a break. But in the, in that month, your taste buds will Like you'll go from hating something to being like, oh man, I need broccoli. It can be done, but I I do think if you know that in the back of your mind, as you're trying to make some changes... I think it's a really good point to make habit changes. It takes time. And as you know, sugar for some people, we all, you know, sugar is wonderful, right? Like love it. For some people, it hits that dopamine pleasure center more than another person. It's like, you know, heroin for some people. Some people have are are naturally self-regulated with sugar intake and some people aren't as regulated in their genetic components, their behavioral components, their psychological components to it. But certainly for people who have a, quote, food addiction, if you will, which is kind of a weird word, it's a lowercase food, but who have a hard time with the off switch, right? You know, changing that relationship to sugar involves, you know, kindness, compassion, grace, and then, you know, slowly and gradually not restricting, but actually just eating smarter. It's not about restricting. It's not about dieting. It's not even about the number on the scale. It's about moderating the sugar and recognizing that you may have a chemical tendency towards binging. And it's not because you're broken. It's not because you're lazy. It's not because you're a failure. It's because that's part of your DNA and, and part of your 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 makeup. And that's that's really, to me, where the birthplace of health is, is, is in those conversations with yourself. And you know, ideally with your doctor too, because so many doctors are going around saying, Lose weight, exercise more, see you next year. And that's just not helpful. That that fuels the shame narrative that so many women walk around with. Yeah. And I, I'm still sort of, when I say I'm in a better, a good place, I, I always could improve. There are certain foods and drinks that are just no goes for me because once I start, it doesn't stop. And that doesn't mean never. If I'm on a trip, stuck in a hotel room, Joe and I have been working like crazy and we're exhausted and they have chocolate. Well, I'm going to eat, eat a lot of chocolate that night. <laughs> yeah. And that's okay. And then, and then the key is to like wake up the next morning and not try to overcompensate and like starve the next day, which a lot of people do and self-flagellate and then be hangry. It's like, you know what? That was that, you know? Oh, well, one of my friends who's like a super high achiever person was telling me her new mantra is, oh, well. Yeah. I mean, she wouldn't say, oh, well, if her daughter broke her leg and was like, you know, like you have to use that mantra, you know, in the right moment. But, but in terms of 
talking to yourself, kindness and compassion. Be kind, move on. And, and you're right. I mean, I used to actually react to those binge moments and then it would lead to more bad behavior, which would lead to more binging. So you do have to just like learn how to accept and turn the page and be like, you know what? That was delicious. Now I feel kind of gross, but tomorrow's a new day. <laughs> tomorrow's a new day and every feeling is transient, right? Like everything is transient. I mean, I'd be interested to hear about your what you learned in DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, which is such an interesting modality. I honestly think it should be required across the board, everywhere, high schools, colleges. Totally. <laughs> it should also be required to have a Twitter account, in my humble opinion. You have to sign, you have to, because, you know, DBT, I mean, tell me, but to me, it's about like, emotional regulation, behavioral regulation, self-awareness. And uh, as I try to describe it to some patients where I'm trying to convince them to start doing it, you know, the expression, don't just sit there, do something. Yeah. DBT is about don't just do something, sit there. Yes, it is. And it's about slowing down. And I, I just will, I'll do the big sell. Please. DBT makes all of your relationships better more authentic, more accepting, less filled with strife. I mean, it, it is truly a basis by which you operate, you know, with everybody that you love. And if, if, if you really love someone and you want to improve the relationship, you will do DBT <laughs> because it's the only way to do that. You, there's not one other therapy that teaches you how to do things differently in a way that improves the bond without shame, without angst, without locking heads. I mean, it's, it's really brilliant. I've been doing it for three years now. And, um, I've been working on relationship with food, relationship with my daughters, you know, relationship with the people in my life who are important to me, their dad, really practicing every aspect of it. And I actually gave up sugar for a month. Um, I was working with my DBT person on this and, um, and it worked. It's hard. I'm thinking of doing it again, but like I have to get psyched up for it. <laughs> but like these are the types of things I was able to do with DBT. And like tolerate and tolerate that distress, right? It's like about yes. distress tolerance. Yes. And like we live in a distressing world and who couldn't benefit from a little more distress tolerance. What are some like, I mean, if you're willing to talk about, like what are some specific examples of like a practice in DBT that has helped you like in actual, the real world example? Well, slowing down on, yeah. on everything. I pre-DBT found myself to be very reactive and hyper and amped up. And a lot of it was being on the air every day and then doing a million things after and then texting, you know, and fixing problems like across the America, you know, while I'm on my phone and like just blah. I was like, every day was just like so many different things coming out of me from, you know, whether it be in text to my daughter or emails or, oh, I'm on the air while I'm emailing. And I mean, it was just kind of like too much. And, you know, kind of felt like I was missing out on everything, just constantly doing. And it has you slow down, takes a minute to return a text. I works on putting my phone down and not having it open in front of me, you know, trying to operate in my wise mind more than my emotion mind. There's the emotional mind, there's the wise mind, and then the two together, that's part in the middle where they overlap, maybe is the, the sweet spot, maybe not. And I also practiced mindfulness and I do the apps, either calm or headspace or just my own breathing that I do when I'm running and like taking a five mile run or a three mile run and spending the entire run noticing the sounds around me. 
Tired of wondering where to look for trusted medical information and advice? Subscribe to Dr. Lucy McBride's newsletter and wonder no more. Each week, Dr. McBride delivers real-time information about the latest medical news and guidance on how to manage your physical and mental health in tandem. Subscribe online at www.lucymcbride.com newsletter and learn the tools you need to manage your health. Again, that's www.lucymcbride.com newsletter to subscribe. Welcome back to Beyond the Prescription. It's so important what you're saying, Mika. It's, it's, it's almost, as I was saying earlier, and I think you agree, it's almost a necessity of modern life to have those tools, particularly with social media and phones and all the stimuli and all the tragedies and trauma in the world and in our individual lives to have those set of tools to turn to. They're accessible to you at all times, right? Like it's not like you have to go to a gym to do DBT or go to, I mean, you have to do, you have to work with a person, but you can bring the lessons into your everyday life, into your consciousness. Is that? There's actually a book, DBT for Dummies. Ooh, let's talk about it. <laughs> Which, yeah, my, uh, the woman who I work with, Dr. Jillian Galen at the McLean Hospital, she works with Blaze Gear. They are the two pretty much top DBT doctors in the country. Um, and they trained under the woman who created DBT. And they wrote a book together called DBT for Dummies. And it went to number one on Amazon. We had them on the show and it went to number one. Like none of our authors, does that happen to? I mean, they definitely get it. Our show gives people a huge boost on Amazon, like in a big way. But I can't think of anybody who went to number one and they stayed there. <laughs> for quite a while. I mean, it's, it's, it's a sign of it being a good book. And it's also a exactly. sign of our time that people are a so of thirsty. Time. People are mm-hmm. so thirsty for tools to help with their everyday adrenaline level and that sort of twitchy phone addiction, you know, do things just to say you did without really recognizing what our internal cues are. And, and again, like, I know you're still a work in progress, but, but to crack that code and to have insight about your own behaviors and relationship is really, I mean, the problem is you might now live to your 105 and, and your show is going to be like five hours next year. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my God. No more, no more. Um, I'll tell you though, DBT for dummies or doing the uh, DBT will, will really help. I actually feel like, you know, it should be, and I think there is a move afoot in, in England and they're in some jurisdictions in the United States to try and mainstream it or a form of it, social emotional training. Um, it's emotion regulation. You know, we, we, we have been using these phones for 20 years, 15 years now. You know, you and I, we grew up without these things. Oh, for sure. I wondered how we ever got together with people, but we, we just called on the phone and we showed up, I guess. We know what life is like without these. And it was clunky. Like you, you couldn't connect that quickly. It was harder to do things. You had to actually wait for the phone to ring or drive to a place and meet with somebody. But I think we don't, I think we underestimate the value of seeing money when you're spending it, of driving to a place, investing time to meet with someone, or of picking up a book and reading it and putting it down and picking it up again, and the quiet of the world before these came along. I'm so worried. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on our girls or our our children who are literally, when they're 10, they get these phones, and that's when the lights go out. That's when they stop interacting with people one-on-one and they start doing it here. Yeah. Not to mention, you know, all the data on 
middle school girls and the self-esteem kind of crisis that they face even pre-phone era. And then you have all these images on Instagram and as a mother of a daughter, you know, these are the things we talk about um, because, you know, how you feel about yourself, your body. I mean, those feelings also form so many of your habits. And and I worry a lot about our, our, our younger generation, particularly after social isolation for two years and being on screens more, but also in the fast paced world we live in. And I think you're right, like taking the time to drive somewhere and meet someone, wait and not have to be on your phone while you're waiting. Just actually just wait. Can you imagine all the things that our kids are doing on social media? I mean, all these things used to be monitored. Like for example, there's an app where um, one of our kids can see where all of her friends are on a Friday night. And so like all the little like names are clustered together at a party and this person might not be invited, but sees that she was not invited. Or that your boyfriend broke up with you in seventh grade, like mine did. And then I would see, I would have seen that the next day he was out getting ice cream with some other girl, which I found out anyway, even though I didn't have the internet. But I mean, I I don't know. I think I'd be in the fatal position if I was a teenager in this day. I just think there's so much stuff going on in their lives that is traumatic that we have no clue about because they're staring at their phone. It's happening right there and there's no response. They don't know how to respond. They're talking to each other through text and Snapchat and all these apps. And it's not real talking. It's this lingo. I'm not against it. I just think that if we knew more about it and if social media companies and tech companies, the same rules applied to them, there would be like a real, um, law enforced age limit. It would be like cigarettes. Right. Well, similar to how we were talking about the relationship with food or the relationship with alcohol. I mean, I think one of the things that is sort of a fundamental pillar of health is having an understanding of what is your relationship to tech. It's almost like you have to have a tech hygiene, you know, like understanding of yourself. Like how do I, you know, just like some people binge on, on sugar. Some people binge on alcohol. Some people binge on, and I will acknowledge I'm often on Twitter at midnight right before I go to bed. Like not a good idea. You know, those things affect our health too. So it's kind of part of the kit of being healthy includes an understanding of what your relationship with tech is. But you're a 50 year old doctor. Okay an accomplished woman who grew up without phones and is educated. Now think about our kids and they're growing. Think about an eight or a nine-year-old who just got a phone. Oh, they have no awareness of their relationship with tech at all. I mean, they just, they just do it. I mean, and even the best intended parents, and I try to be this too, is, you know, we talk about time outside and being in nature and time without the phone and never have phone. We never have phones at dinner. I mean, if someone brings our phone to dinner, actually, I brought my phone to our family dinner the other night and I was crucified by my kids. <laughs> That's so because awesome. they're like mom, you know, they're like the moral police. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's a complicated time to be a teenager. And then I think, again, DBT is where, you know, there's a, there's a mental health crisis among adolescents right now. And if people could educate our our young people about you know reading, writing and arithmetic and emotional regulation, that would be great. Right. That's that's part of health, too. And that's part of how we age gracefully. And it's where we're lacking right now in our young people, emotion regulation, understanding their feelings and how to communicate. You know, we talk about stress and anxiety and it's almost these words are so common, right? I'm stressed. I'm anxious. I'm depressed. I think it's important to realize, I know you realize this, but I'd be interested in your thoughts about it. You know, we all have anxieties. We all have stresses. We all have moods. That's part of being human. So the the goal of, say, a DBT or seeing a therapist or being more mindful isn't to get rid of anxiety, to get rid of stress 
or to be happy all the time. Similarly, the goal of parenting isn't to make your kids happy all the time. In fact, that would be kind of weird and also impossible. Um, it's really to, it's it's the regulation. It's it's the understanding when anxiety has become a problem, where it's interfering with your quality of life, where stress is in the driver's seat and you're not in control of your everyday health and habits. In other words, it's not about sanitizing our world and and, and mopping up every speck of, of stress and anxiety. It's about, it's about regulation and moderation. Yes. And I'm going to try and put this into words because... Um... You know, I mean, not everybody's going to want to do DBT or they're going to say, why? I would get the book. I would try. But I I think the thing that has changed for me and has allowed me to be at times actually happy, you know, which is something I pretended to be a lot. And I would mix reality with pretend all the time. Like, this is happy, right? I'm happy. <laughs> um, but, you know, I do think that slowing down pacing yourself, pacing out your career, not looking at what other people are doing and where you should be, but sort of accepting where you are and going from there, going and growing and building relationships and showing up and trying to become the person who you want to be or reach the goals you want to attain. I think if you want to be happy along with that, which is really essential because why do anything? If you, if it doesn't lead you to happiness and fulfillment and stronger relationships. And I think that's where, um, we're, we're given a lot of mixed messages and we're, we're constantly rushing and I've learned to slow down. Now for me, that's still fast for a lot of people. I'm sure you're slow as someone else's fast. It's a little fast, but I used to run around in circles and I always thought I would get to the happy by, if I ran faster, I'll get there. There was this bad math going on in my mind. And instead, it's about being happy as you are in the process of growth. And you're not constantly shaming yourself and making yourself feel bad because you haven't done this right or you haven't done this fast enough or you've eaten that or whatever. So it's a whole change of mindset that I think one really needs to focus on to be able to not only make great choices for yourself and live a healthy life, but enjoy it. Because it's kind of like a wonderful, vicious cycle of happiness and health and mindfulness. They kind of feed on each other. And I do think you end up being healthier if you are sort of following the guidelines of being kind to yourself, not constantly kicking yourself for not doing this or not doing that. There's like, I don't know, I used to have like a meter or a measure of have I done enough is sort of what I was always asking myself. And I don't even know why, don't know who, who did that to me or why I did that to myself. But when I stopped is when I actually started getting really successful. Isn't that incredible? It's incredible. Mika, this conversation has been so great. You're, you're so lovely. And, and I'm not just saying that to like be nice. You're very authentic and present. And what's so cool about that is that, you know, I see you on TV. I see you, you know, leading a lot of the conversation nationally about various things. And here you are, you know, eye to eye and talking about really vulnerable stuff and, and owning it and using it for good. And I think that's really cool. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Does your personal brand or business have a story to tell? Podcasts are a great way to build a genuine connection with your audience. Whether you have an existing podcast or want to start a new one, with K-Global, all you need is the drive to succeed, and we'll take care of the rest. Let's get to work. www.kglobal.com slash podcast. Welcome back. Let's get on with our conversation. I want to ask you one last question before I let you go, which is, 
I mean, you've kind of already covered it, but what's one piece of kind of mental health advice you would give somebody who is struggling today? Like someone who is struggling with you know, whatever it was, whether it was, you know, managing a hard job or a tough relationship or struggling with a health problem, like trying to kind of make it work. Like what, what's sort of one sort of central theme that you would tell them? Well, I'll just, whenever I'm talking to someone who's struggling, like if Joe will come to me and he's struggling with something or one of my kids, or I've got a lot of kids in my life. And so if they've really got something, the first thing I will always be like to myself in helping this person, if I don't say this to the person themselves, is let's slow down. Hold on a second. Let's just slow down a second. All right. And I, if, if it's like a rapid text situation coming to me or if the person, I say it to myself, like, I'm not going to be helpful to this person if I jump to their defense or I jump to their rescue and I solve all the problems. Let's slow down. And then it's, what do you think you should do? Like, ask the person what he or she thinks they should do. And the reason is that often it's very invalidating to be like, oh, I think you should do this. That's, it's not helpful. That's just doing it for them. Okay. So what do you think you should do is a really helpful question. And then the follow-up is, how do you think I can help you? Like, what could I do? Like, use me. You can utilize what I have to offer, but verbalize what it is you need. Um, and if sometimes people just need to talk, sometimes they just need to be heard. Sometimes they're done after just this conversation. It's such a good example. It's like, all I'm thinking about right now is my daughter when she comes to me with a, a problem or a question or something that's frustrating. And I'm like, okay, here's what you got to do. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. and she, she already knows, she already says to me, she's kind of an old soul. She's like a Buddha. And she's like, mom, I don't need you to fix it. I need you yeah. to listen and empathize no, and tell me. Right, exactly. I'm a fixer. You're and a so, fixer. and it's good. I learned from her, but you've just given whoever's listening permission to ask themselves that question. What does they do? The greatest term in the world for people like us, Lucy, is we are snowplow moms. We don't even fix it. We like snowplow the whole thing, like make the, and like, then they walk. No, they don't want that. Okay. They don't want you to fix it. They don't want you to plow the path forward. Sometimes they just want to like vent. Totally. <laughs> Vent and and I'm like that with my mom too and I think I see you on Instagram with your adorable mother. I mean I still like to vent to my mom and she'll try to fix it. I'm like mom, I just want to complain. That's it. Yeah, I hear you. And but it's good. It's it's giving yourself permission to just name how you feel, normalize it, and then sometimes you can navigate it yourself. Because you're so wise. I mean, geez, if you ever need another career, you could go into you know psychotherapy. Yeah. You're very wise. But in the meantime, keep being you and uh, doing all the things you do so well with compassion for yourself. And I'm just grateful for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you like this episode, I'd love you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us a line at podcast at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on the show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice applicable to individuals. Such advice must be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at K Global Studios in Washington, D.C. Our music is by my super fabulous brother, Walter Martin. On our way out, please enjoy his song, Let the Tall Ship Sail. I'm your host, Lucy McBride, and until next time, be well. 
Climbed on a big boat and sailed away Heard the waves of the water calling out for me Going over yonder where the water is wide Following the stars in the big night sky Let the tall ship sail As the wild winds will If I ever make it home